But parents, have there ever been times when your children have come to you and they've had questions and you really had no idea the answer to give to them? Perhaps when they're small, it's a little easier for you when you're trying to grasp at what maybe the answer might be to reach out there and stab in the proverbial dark. But the older they get, the harder it is to do that. But can you imagine what it would be like if you had perfect knowledge? If you really did have the answer to all the questions, can you imagine how bombarded that you might be? You know, I'm frustrated with the feeling and the thought that as a preacher, that I don't know the questions that ever answer to all the questions I get asked. It's painfully, it's obviously true. But Jesus did. And you can imagine that such a fount of knowledge and information that people were always striving to know more from him. Can you imagine all the questions that Jesus had to field? We had the question and answers that we did for so long. We haven't done that lately. Can you imagine Jesus? And In fact, we don't have to imagine. We can look in the Gospels and we can see the Q&As that Jesus fielded, like Matthew chapter 22. But when you come to a book like the book of John that's filled with signs about who Jesus is, that he is the one who is the Christ, the Son of God, and that we should believe in him and in him have life through his name, you can understand that there are questions coming from everywhere. There are literally dozens of questions in the Gospel of John. There are questions that Jesus asked. There are questions that people ask Jesus. There are questions that people asked about Jesus. What I want us to do for just a few minutes is to look through the Gospel of John and find a few of the more intriguing and interesting ones. The first question we'll look at is the one that was, uh, we saw in our Bible reading a moment ago. Can any good thing come out of Nazareth? And the individual that asks this is Nathaniel. If you make some notations in your Bible, there are some characters that only appear in John and all the Gospels, and Nathaniel is one of those characters. We read about Nathaniel here in John chapter 1. We're going to read about him one more time in John 21 and verse 2. He's at the head of a list of individuals who go with Peter after the resurrection of Jesus. He says, I go fishing, and Nathaniel and the others go with them. But on this occasion, as we saw, Jesus has been ministering. He's at the beginning of his ministry, and as he goes about, he comes up to Philip. He decides to go to Galilee the next day, and he finds Philip, and he says to him, Come follow me. And Philip does. He follows him. He's from Bethsaida, the city of Andrew and Peter. And he goes to Nathanael, and he says, We have found the one of whom Moses wrote in the law and in the prophets, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. And that's when Nathanael asked his question, Can any good thing come out of Nazareth? And Philip said, Come and see. Now, as we examine this very interesting question, we may ask ourselves, Why did Nathanael ask that? Is he asking this out of some sort of hometown rivalry? He's from nearby Cana of Galilee? Or is it perhaps that he's perplexed? as he's trying to figure out what Philip is saying about the one that he's asking him to come and see. Is he the Messiah? Is he the one that the law and the prophets have been speaking of? And there's a problem with that. At least in the minds of many of the Jews. He is from Nazareth of Galilee. How could he be the one? 
This is going to be a problem that's going to plague Jesus as we look later on in the book of John. In John chapter 7 and verse 40, Jesus is saying all these amazing things and the people begin to ask this or say about him, this is the prophet. Others say, this is the Christ. And others say, is the Christ to come out of Galilee? Is where does it say that this one who is from da- the, of the offspring of David, who is from Bethlehem, he's the, the Christ is to come from the village where David was. And so there was a division among the people over him. John chapter 7, verse 40 through 43. And you remember what happens next? Jesus is so marvelous in his works and in his teachings that the crowd are taken by him and are amazed by him. And the Pharisees go and the Sanhedrin go and send their officers to bring him back and arrest him. And they come back empty-handed and they ask, why don't you have him? And they say, because no man ever spoke as this man spake. And that's when we see it pick up again. There at the end of John chapter 7. Where Nicodemus, who had previously been to him, he speaks up and says about Jesus, does our law judge a man before it knows what he's done and what he teaches? And they say, you're not also from Galilee, are you? For where that search and see that no prophet arises out of Galilee. Perhaps that's Nathaniel's problem. He doesn't recognize that Jesus is the Messiah because he expects him to come from somewhere else. You know, we understand from Matthew chapter 2 and verse 23 that Jesus being from Nazareth is in fulfillment of Old Testament prophecy. And when we come to examine what that prophecy might be, I believe our best guess would be Isaiah chapter 11 and verse 1. There's the Hebrew word netzar there, which means branch, but it also refers to the city of Nazareth. But what I want you to see is that Nathaniel at first was not going to follow Jesus because he did not fit his expectation of who the Messiah was going to be. You know, so often we find in the Gospels that they were looking for a showy Savior. They were looking for one who was physically appealing, one who was attractive in some way. And Jesus did not fit such preconceived molds. In John chapter 6, which we're going to look at in just a moment, you have those who were following Jesus for the bread, but he was not fulfilling their expectations, and so they walked away and followed him no more. Or we think about the rich young ruler who comes to Jesus expecting one thing, hearing something else. And Mark 10 verse 22 says he left disappointed. Or how about at the very end of Jesus' life where Pilate sends him to Herod. And Herod has been wanting to see Jesus, expecting some kind of sideshow from him. And when Jesus doesn't entertain him and amuse him, he sends him away. Luke 23 and verse 7. What Nicodemus helps us to see is that we can't fit Jesus into our preconceived mold, but we must be molded into his shape and his image. 2 Corinthians 3 and verse 18. The question contains so much to convict, and that is, can anything good come out of Nazareth? If we see Jesus as he really is in Scripture, then the answer to that is absolutely. But then we see a question that comes from a completely different quarter. One of those who are on the Sanhedrin court, the highest judicial court among the Jews, a Pharisee by the name of Nicodemus. We read about his encounter with Jesus in John chapter 3. This is the first of three times we're going to read about Nicodemus, and again, only John records Nicodemus. 
The next time we're going to see him is in John chapter 7 when he is defending Jesus against the rest of the Sanhedrin. And we're going to see him one more time in John chapter 19 and verse 39. He's going to team with another on the Sanhedrin, Joseph of Arimathea, who had also been a secret disciple, but now boldly goes and he craves the body of Jesus. That's our Nicodemus. And Nicodemus, as we read about him in John chapter 3, is one who reveres Jesus to some degree, but he's not willing to go and see Jesus in the broad daylight. And so he goes and he talks to him under the cover of darkness. He wants to know the important information that the teacher of Israel can give. And Jesus begins to blow his mind. He begins to talk to him and he says, Except you're born of water and the Spirit, you cannot enter into the kingdom of heaven. And that's when he asks our question, How can a man be born when he is old? Jesus answers him. But what we find is that Nicodemus is looking for a literal answer. It's hard for him, as deep as his thinking is, as much of an influence among the rest of the Jews that he was, it's hard for him to grasp what Jesus is talking about in the rebirth. Jesus begins to show us some things about the nature of that rebirth that may be difficult for Nicodemus, that it's conditional. Unless a man be born, it's spiritual. He's trying and patiently walking him through the process and showing him it's not a physical birth. You can't enter into your mother's womb a second time and be born again. But it's essential. You must be born again. I think for Nicodemus it had to have been just so difficult. Difficult perhaps that it was as simple as Jesus was saying. Difficult also that it involves such a radical transformation and a change. You know, when Jesus tells us what it is that's involved in following him, it can be so difficult for us to grasp. So much about what Jesus calls for can be hard. Difficult on the the one hand to, to believe that God wants to reconcile us to himself through Jesus. 2 Corinthians chapter 5 and verse 19. That we must do something that makes no sense to us in an earthly sense. That we must be born of water. Certainly an allusion to water baptism. But also that we in living the way that Jesus wants to live must deny the very basic desires that we have that drive us in this life. Luke chapter 9 and verse 23. When we see what Jesus has to say to Nicodemus We understand how he would say in John 3 and verse 9, how can these things be? And what Jesus is saying is because essentially I am the one who has the source of life and I say that it's that way. How can a man be born when he is old? It's a spiritual birth. There's a third question that's asked. It's asked over in John chapter 6. It's asked by the crowd that's been following Jesus. In fact, they have become groupies because of what Jesus is offering in a physical sense. Jesus is one who would always heal those who came to him. And not only that, Jesus would supply the needs of those who came to the right source, to Jesus, to fill that need. And in John chapter 6, you may recall that just previously to this, that the day before, that Jesus had fed them. And what they're saying in essence is we want the second helpings without the lecture. We would like to have the food that you've given to us. We want those, the, those victuals, but we don't want the spiritual help. In John 6 and verse 26. But I want you to see that they're full of questions. What's incredible to me, if I have it counted right, if you'll walk through John chapter 6, is that they ask eight questions. 
I mean, they're pumping Jesus for more and more information. And you would think that if people who had locked down and asked so many questions, they're going to ultimately do what it is that Jesus says is involved. But the second question is the one that's the most important one of all. The other questions they ask seem to be asked either out of idle curiosity or implicit condemnation. But it's that second question that I want us to focus on. And the walk up to this question... Jesus says, do not labor for the food that perishes, but for the food that endures to eternal life. For those of us in Western culture that so consume a materialism, that's a great advice for us. Jesus gives his question in response to that, and, and I want us to look past their disingenuous response ultimately to what Jesus says in answer to this question. What work shall we do that we may do the works of God? Jesus says, this is the work of God that you believe on the one whom he has sent. Now, as we look at what is being said here in John chapter 6, perhaps as we do a, a complete concordance or topical study of the subject of works, we may become confused. And we may think that the apostle Paul is in conflict with Jesus in what he says here. When we read a passage like Ephesians chapter 2, verse 8 and 9, when Paul says, For by grace are you saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not of works, lest any should boast. Someone may say, well, what's Paul talking about and what is Christ talking about? Because in John chapter 6, Jesus says, This is the work of God, that you believe on him whom he sent. You know, those that we love and we care so much about, who have ascribed to a very broad and widely accepted religious view, and that is the idea of faith only, reject the idea of doing any kind of work in response to the will of God because they say that it's earning our salvation. I want you, I want you to notice here that Jesus, he doesn't say this is the work of God that you should repent of your sins. He doesn't say this is the work of God, that you should be baptized to have your sins washed away. He says this is the work that you believe. So what's the difference between Paul's works and the works of John 6? Well, Paul defines it for us. He says the works in Ephesians chapter 2 are those works which when you do them, you put God in your debt. You may boast of. But the works here are the works which are required by God. One no more earns their salvation by repenting and being baptized than they do when they believe in Christ because the works are the same. Now the very first people that asked that question weren't interested in the answer in the first place. But when we come to God and we seek anything from Him, we've got to be interested in hearing what it is that He has to say. The works that we do are what God requires in order to respond to His great love and His great grace. Then we come to a fourth question that's asked. It's after Jesus has come into the city. John sets up different than the other Gospels. There seems to be more even time that's spent on the ministry of Jesus. But John gets us to that last week of Jesus' life about halfway into the book. And in John chapter 12, Jesus has triumphantly entered the city. And he, the voice of the Father has been heard from heaven and then Jesus hears this question, who is this son of man? Matthew chapter 12 and verse 34. You know, Jesus has just made his famous statement. Now is the time that judgment has come. Now is the time that the prince of this world shall be cast out. And I, if I be lifted up from the earth, will draw all men unto me. 
Jesus, as he's speaking here, is referring to the fact that he's come to die on the cross, verse 33, but they misunderstand prophecy. Those in Jesus' lifetime had a, a wrong conception of the Messiah, that he was going to live forever, obviously on this earth. And Jesus comes to show them exactly what the Son of Man is. This Son of Man reference goes back to verse 23. At the beginning of Jesus' teaching about the Son of Man, where he refers to his humanity. But it goes to show us that Jesus has always been an enigma. So that people ask, who is this Son of Man? This one that we can identify, who was robed in human flesh, who walked among us, who was like one of us, who's indistinguishable in his physical traits from us. Who is this Son of Man? You know, our friends in the uh, Muslim world, they misunderstand Jesus. They say Jesus is a great prophet but he's only a prophet. The atheists, they see Jesus as one who clashes with a naturalistic worldview that they have so sewn up in their mind. To our Western culture, Jesus is the source of fundamental fanaticism or the squelcher of hedonistic fun. But even in the broader religious world, people don't really know Jesus as he reveals himself. And you know it's not automatic for us. Just being baptized into Christ is not enough. There there must be a development of a relationship if we're really going to know who the Son of Man is. As we dig into the disciplines of knowing our Lord as we devote ourselves to sincere submission to Him, as we depend on Him, as we pray to Him, and as we study His Word. It's through this that we come to know Him, and we can. We can share not just the aspiration of Paul in Philippians 3, when he says, I want to know Him. We can come to know Him. We can know Him more deeply every day. It's the right question. But the first people who asked that question weren't really interested in finding out who he is, we must. A fifth question is asked by a disciple in John chapter 14, where he says, how can we know the way? In the study of Thomas, he gets a bad rap, doesn't he? You know, he's called the doubting Thomas, and and yet when we look into secular history, it is said that Thomas lost his life by being stabbed with a, uh, with a spear by pagan princes for preaching Jesus Christ. When we look at Thomas, he seems to have been a leader among the disciples. In John chapter 11, we find him in verse 16 who kind of stands at the head of the crowd and says, Let's go with Christ that we may die also. We also see that Thomas was not the only one. We often point to him who says, unless I see the scars in his hands, I won't believe that he's risen. But do you remember what Luke tells us in Luke 24 and verse 38? There were the women who had seen Jesus raised or had seen the angel saying that he was risen and they, uh, they have somehow gotten the words to Cleopas and that other disciple on the road to Emmaus and there's the encounter with Jesus. They just don't know that it's Jesus and he speaks with them and he tells them all the things of the Old Testament about him. Those disciples get back to the apostles. In Luke 24, verse 38, and they're downloading the information that they have gotten. And while that's taking place, Jesus comes into their midst and he says to them, peace be unto you. And when they see Jesus, the Bible tells us that they're frightened and they're amazed. And Jesus says, why are doubts arising in your heart? Look at my hands and my feet and see that it is I. 
For a spirit does not have flesh and bones as you see me now have. And they're still filled with joy and amazement. And they're having a hard time believing. And so he just walks right into that same path. How can we know the way? There's no rebuke for that question. In fact, the answer is a remarkable one. How can we know the way? Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. When we come to examine the way, if Jesus is the way, then it's a way worth our following. To consider the way of Jesus without going in at any great length, look at the Gospels, the life of Jesus Christ. And we can see that it's a way worth following because of what can be examined about the Gospel writers. The events that are written in the Gospels are like an angel from heaven. The events that are written in the Gospels are such that we look and see that what they say are written by those who are associated with the events. They're writing about one that they walk among. But Not only that, we see that what they write are not impossibilities. That they're not so incredible so as to be unbelieved. That they're not so biased as to be unbelievable in the things that they share and the facts that they say about Jesus conform to the objective statements about Jesus outside of the New Testament. When you go to authenticate anything, you do it the same way when you're handling a historical document. When you look at Caesar's Gaelic Wars all the way to the history of the early part of our nation, you have to examine on the basis of the very things that we said. The things that the gospel writers wrote originally are the things that we have through the process of textual criticism. And such being the case, we can verify that what the gospels say about Jesus is so. How can we know the way? Because it's verifiable objectively. And that being the case... It's the way that we should go. The last question is very interesting indeed. It's the last one that Jesus hears that we know of, at least recorded, before he goes to the cross. It's asked by Pilate, a Roman, an unbeliever. One who is really faced with a dilemma of what to do with Jesus and what to do with the Jews. He doesn't ask his question out of an attempt to try to find the answer. He's just frustrated by the circumstance that he finds himself in. But he asks a powerful question. What is truth? You know, the philosophers will tell us that truth is that which conforms to reality. It has been said, when Cordian said that, that truth is, does not, uh, because it is true, it does not fill contemporary void in the culture, But it fills the void in contemporary culture because it is true. Jesus is the source of truth. And Pilate had it right in front of him. Jesus says that truth is knowable. John 8 and verse 32. And then Paul says that truth is obeyable. Romans chapter 2 and verse 8. Isn't it remarkable that with with truth in such close proximity that Pilate never got any closer to embracing and obeying and living the truth than when he asked his question. I don't know if you ever heard this when you were in school. There's no such thing as a dumb question, an ignorant question. In fact, the questions that we don't ask are probably the most regrettable ones. But it's not just a matter of asking the right question. It's doing the right thing with the answers to the questions that we ask. And if it is a question about something that matters at all, then Jesus has addressed it. In going to Jesus, you're going to the source 
where the right answers are to be found. The question is, what will we do to the answer of the questions that we ask? These questions were asked by different people. Some of the people that asked these questions were those who were not believers. And after they were done, they were not believers. Whether it was Pilate or those in John chapter 6 or those in John chapter 12. But some who asked those questions upon asking them became believers. And how many in looking back over these questions were not believers when they got to the book of John, but by the time they get to John chapter 20, they can say with the writer, I believe that Jesus is the Son of God and that life is through His name. And some were asked by those who were disciples who simply wanted to know more. I hope that's you and me. I hope we never get to the place where we feel like we have answered all the questions that there are. In fact, we're like little Junior and Miss Princes, aren't we? The more we ask the questions of Jesus, the more questions we find that there are. But the questions that matter in their answers are those which He has disclosed for us. There's a couple of questions that we ask. And we need to always ask. When we get to the end of teaching and preaching of God's Word and we go through that exercise of the invitation that we do as an expedient for someone who might have had the need to respond... We should not gloss over the questions. And we need to make sure that we answer them biblically. And so the question is, are you a Christian? It's not what the world says. It's not what we may have believed before we began our examination of Jesus and His words. But Jesus tells us how to become a Christian. Maybe it is that you've been studying about that or you want to know more about these truths. That is, that Jesus tells us that becoming a Christian is as simple as responding to His message of grace and denying ourselves, taking up our cross and following Him. That involves believing that He is the Savior. This Son of Man is the one who has come to take care of our sin problem. That in denying ourselves, repentance means we change our mind that leads us to live in submission to Him as the Lord of our lives. No longer us, no longer this world but Him. And confessing that Jesus is God's Son, that we might have that lead into salvation, Romans 10 and verse 10. And being baptized, being born of water and of the Spirit.